0: to uh, get started. I'm Howard Davis, the director of the school, and uh, it's my role this evening not to introduce the uh, Tagore evening, which um, my colleague will do in a moment, but just to introduce the literary festival as a whole, because this is the first event of a uh, three, four-day extravaganza um, of literary events. This is the third Literary Festival, the LSE has done. Uh, It owes uh, an enormous amount to the enthusiasm of Louise Gaskell in our events department, who's hovering up the back there and I'm sure will be around for a drink afterwards. And the thought was that the school should look for the links between literature and the social sciences and explore that over a period um, in a way that we find is quite... Uh, constructive and stimulating. And there are many, many uh, links between the social sciences and literature, and indeed going right back to the foundation of the school, where one of the founders of the LSE was George Bernard Shaw, someone who uh, incidentally did uh, come across uh, Tagore at one point uh, in his life as well. And as the festival has developed, we've found more and more links in Uh, anthropology, in international development as well of course as more conventional links in uh, politics and the the, uh, weekend has actually had some curious spin-offs in that the first one we had a debate about why it was that novelists and playwrights didn't seem to be writing about finance and what was going on at that time in the uh, financial world and the huge financial crisis which actually led to because David Hare was one of those discussing it, a discussion I chaired and he went back to the National Theatre and told uh, Nick Heitner, the director about this discussion and he commissioned him to write The Power of Yes uh, which was then on at the National Theatre. So um, we hope that perhaps this year's third festival will produce some spin-off of an unlikely kind as well. And we're particularly grateful uh, for the support of the LSE's annual fund, which is the fund that collects the small donations from alumni through the year, and then we have a committee that allocates funds from all those small donations, and they support this program, so it's supported by a large number of LSE alumni. Also this year by uh, Michael Uver, uh, a particular alumnus of the school who is enthusiastic about this venture, um, and indeed by uh, Guarantee Bank of Turkey. And this weekend we have all kinds of events, and people like Tim Garton-Ash are speaking, John Gray, a Turkish novelist Elif Safak, uh, we've got legendary actor Ron Moody, an LSE alumnus who appeared in the original production of uh, Oliver, the former Poet Laureate, Andrew Motion, a lot of things, and I hope that those of you who have come perhaps with particular interest uh, in Tagore will nonetheless have a look at what all else is on over the weekend. There are tickets uh, for some of these events still available. So thank you all for coming uh, this evening. Um, I know that uh, Mukulika Banerjee is going to introduce uh, Tagore himself, uh, so I will say only one thing about him which she may not say, which is that the fact that we are devoting an evening to him is an absolutely astonishing sign of the LSE's generosity of spirit Uh, because, among his many other achievements, he was a graduate of UCL. Um, Not an institution we always uh, celebrate uh, here at the LSE, so it shows our remarkable uh, generosity and broad-mindedness to put on uh, this evening Um, but uh, Mukherika Banerjee is going to introduce you to it. Uh, Thank you for coming, and I hope you enjoy this evening and the rest of the festival. Thanks.
1: Good evening, everyone. We chose to open this uh, third annual literary festival with a celebration of Tagore's 150th birth anniversary, as he seems to exemplify in so many myriad ways our theme for the festival, Crossing Boundaries. Tagore's work is a formidable oeuvre of 2,500 songs, 28 volumes of short stories, plays, novels, dramas, several volumes of letters, not to speak of hundreds of paintings. In the West, he's best known as the winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1913. He was the first non-white person to do so, as the New York Times reported with characteristic subtlety, um, which was not a negligible achievement in the t- at the time. As his biographers, Andrew Robinson and Krishna Dotto, uh, point out, and I quote, Rabindranath was born in 1861 when notions of racial inferiority and superiority were ingrained in educated minds Eastern and Western. By the time he died in 1941, such ideas were no longer respectable in democratic societies. Tagore was among the pioneers of that global sea change in attitudes." Now during his lifetime, Tagore seems to have crossed many boundaries, national ones as he traveled all over the world, giving lectures, meeting writers, artists, but also boundaries of language. He modernized the Bengali language and experimented with literary form. And he also crossed boundaries between art and politics, being one of the severest critics of the British colonial government, and indeed of domestic nationalist politics. He was a great associate of Mahatma Gandhi, for instance. His legacy in India remains to his authorship of the national anthem, and for his celebrated rejection of a knighthood in 1919 in protest against the Amritsar massacre. In Bengal, from where he is, he was, he's the most revered poet, whose songs and works are performed for pleasure and to inculcate an emotional as well as an aesthetic education. The university that Tagore set up, Shantiniketan, was to provide an alternative to educational rigidities, where the cultivation of beauty and simplicity of living were exemplified in tutorials held under trees. This continues to function, albeit as a shadow of its former self. In the West, however, there's been a degree of ambivalence that mit- mirrored his own ambivalence towards it. When Tagore arrived in London for the second time in 1912, the first thing he did, which will sound familiar to many of us, was to leave a bag behind on the London Underground. (laughs) Only in Tagore's case, the bag contained the only handwritten copy of his translations of Gitanjali that he had translated on the voyage to England. Happily, he was united with it, which is just as well, because he won the Nobel Prize for it the following year. His observation on London are worth recalling, quote, although I do not need to look at it, I pull out my watch like everybody else, snap it open, then quietly put it back away. When the time is neither mealtime nor time to retire, the hotel looks like a moored boat, and one is at a loss to explain one's presence in it. As I stand by the open window, I see streams of people running in various directions. They seem to me like so many tools in the hands of an invisible mechanic. I stand outside this giant engine and see the living pistons propelled by the steam of hunger, moving up and down with indomitable energy. If I shut my eyes for a while and try to form an idea of all the labour and movement that constitutes this city of London, what latent power is in the process of being manifested? Unquote. Soon after this, he met all the leading writers and artists of the day in soirees at Hampstead, W.B. Yeats, the painter Rotzenstein, Vaughan Williams, Cecil Sharp, Edgy Wells, and subsequently, significantly for LSE, George Bernard Shaw, Bertrand Russell, and others. Yeats wrote about the impact of Tagore's poetry on him. Quote, I have carried the manuscript of these translations about with me for days, reading it in railway stations, or on top of the omnibus, and in restaurants, and have often had to close it lest some stranger see how much it moved me. A whole people, a whole civilization, immeasurably strange to us, seems to have been taken up into the imagination, and yet we are not moved because of its strangeness, but because we have met our own image." Tagore acknowledged his debt to his London friends in opening up an international recognition of his work, At the same time, he remained a caustic critic of developments in Europe. In 1931, on his last visit to Europe at a gathering of luminaries organized by the Spectator, where Shaw was also present, he did not hesitate to criticize the League of Nations, which he said was like organizing a band of robbers into a police department. When Tagot died in 1941, it was Shaw who asked Sir Kenneth Clark, the director of the National Gallery, to hang portraits of Tagot, one of them by Rothenstein. During his lifetime, hundreds of visitors from Europe and the United States and elsewhere visited Tagore in India in his beloved Shanti And yet, the friendships that Tagore forged can be best characterized as imperfect encounters. Despite the honorary degree from Oxford, the Nobel Prize, and the celebrated devotees such as Wittgenstein, who we are told read Tagore to escape the certainties of the Vienna circle of logical positivists, something was certainly lost in translation as these writers attempted to cross boundaries of language, colonial politics, and aesthetics. It is this ambivalence that makes the liminal figure of Tagore so compelling for social scientists. This evening, we have invited Bethak, an arts organization of 10 years standing in London, who have done numerous programs around Tagore's work, to present to us a selection of Tagore's work, the director, Dr. Sangeeta Data, has devised a program of characteristic flair of presenting three, not four as it says on the program, for the sake of brevity, of Tagore's short stories, in particular by weaving them with songs, music, and cinematic adaptations of his work. I'll quickly introduce uh, the artists of the evening, the two readers, if you could sort of wave your hands or something. The two readers are Charlie Heneker and Anshuman Biswas, who are up there in front, The singers are Sangeeta Datta, Shahana Bajpayee, and Rishi Banerjee. The musicians, Shomik Datta on the Sarod, later he's in the audience, Alex Hausko on the flute, Shujit Mukherjee on the tabla, and our very own homegrown LSE economic historian, Dr. Tirthankar Roy. The dancer is Pratuna Purukasta. The director of the last film and this program is Dr. Sangeeta Dutta. She's at the back and she'll be sitting in the control room handling uh, the controls. Have an enjoyable evening. Thank you.
2: لکھا آبے خون خانی کی دائے چکا آبے بہت آئی گی چشلے لے دے بہت آئی گی چشلے لے دے 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 ناں
3: his first job, the postmaster was sent off to Ulapur village. It is an ordinary village. There is a Neelkuti close by, so the resident Saab had done his best to open a post office here. Our postmaster is a young man from Calcutta. Having turned up in this remote, godforsaken place, he was left gasping like a fish out of water. His office was in a dark building hastily made of mud and brickwork. It looked out on a stagnant pond, and the forest bordered the other end. The other staff in the post office, mostly villagers, were busy with their work and not really interested in conversing with the Badralok from the city. Our man from the city lacked social skills. He He did not step out and meet other people. He could be either too enthusiastic or too downcast in unknown places, and so he remained a stranger with the villagers. Yet there was not too much work to keep him busy. He would try his hand at poetry sometimes. These poems tried to express the following sentiments. It was pleasant watching the wind ruffle the trees and the clouds swimming in the sky. But oh, if a genie could appear from the Arabian nights and pull out all these trees and replace them with a concrete road, if the sky could be obscured by rows and rows of tall buildings, then this genteel heart would breathe again. Our postmaster earns a poultry salary. He has to cook his own meals, and a young orphan girl from the village does the cleaning and washing. She gets to eat two whole meals in this household. Her name is Rotan, aged about twelve or thirteen. There appears no immediate possibility of her getting married. In the evenings, when smoke would rise from the village homes, crickets would chirp in the bushes. The group of intoxicated Ba'ul singers and their percussionists would be heard from the neighbouring village. When even a poet's heart would be mildly stirred by the tremor on the dark leaves, then our postmaster would light a faint lamp in the corner of his room and call out, Ratan! Ratan would be waiting at the door for his call but would not come in at the first summons. She would call back.
4: What is it, Babu? Why are you calling for me?
3: What are you doing?
4: I'm lighting up the chula, I'm in the kitchen
3: Your kitchen can wait First, get me my hookah and light it Within a few moments, Rotten would enter with her cheeks puffed Blowing hard at the charcoal pellets While taking the hookah from her hands, he would ask "Rotten, do you remember your mother? That was a long time ago There are some faint images and others which are lost Father loved her more than her mother She remembers her father more He would return exhausted from the paddy fields, but she remembers some evenings like clear pictures in front of her eyes. Lost in her memories, Rotten would sit on the mud floor near his feet. She would remember she had a little brother. When the rains came, they would make fishing rods from little twigs and go fishing in the pond. She had forgotten many other serious events, but this memory recurred. And like this, often it would get quite late and our postmaster would feel too lazy to cook. There was always some left over from the afternoon meal, and Rotten would quickly bake some rotis. That would suffice for both of them. <laughs> Some days the postmaster would sit on the wooden charpoy in his office, in the corner of this huge house, and talk about his family, about his younger brother, his mother and sister, about those for whom his heart ached while he lived so far away from home. All that he yearned to talk about but could not share with the clerks of the Neokuti, he would effortlessly confide to this illiterate young village girl. It did not strike him as odd at all. It came to a point when rotten would refer to his family members as ma didi dada as if she had known them all his life in her tiny heart rotten had etched images of these people whom she had never met One day during the monsoon, the rain had let for some time. A mild wind was blowing in the afternoon. A warm, wet vapour rose from the wet grass and trees, like the tired earth had heaved a deep sigh. Somewhere a bird cried incessantly as if it had something really pressing to say. Postmaster did not have much work on his hands. That day he was enjoying the glint of the sun on freshly bathed satin leaves as they moved in the wind. The rain clouds were leaving, making way for piles of fluffy white clouds hit by the sun. Postmaster was thinking, if only there was someone close to his heart to share this beauty with, a beautiful female form to sit close to him. He grew convinced that was what the bird was complaining about, the lack of a companion. And the quiet murmur of the leaves on this solitary afternoon had much the same message. No one would believe this or know of this, but on holidays during the quiet afternoons, our meagre salaried postmaster of a small village would actually have such romantic thoughts.
2: Amare <laughs> Amare ले जाए रोध को जाए आशिदा खबर नहीं उसे रोई आपन मुने बात आश्वाहे बात आश्वाहे हमारे था थे ले तो परे बाबो तो तो खन खले खुशी गाई आपन मने तो तो खन खले थारे खुशी आपन मने तो he raje she a she she a she hamare bahut chawathe anand hamare bahut chawathe
3: Heaving a deep sigh, Postmaster called out, Raton? Raton was sitting under the guava trees, nibbling on raw fruit. On hearing her master's voice, she ran and entered, panting. Dada Babu, did you call me? Postmaster said, I shall teach you to read. And he spent the rest of the afternoon introducing her to the Bangla alphabet, and in a few days introduced her to spelling as well. It was the month of Sravan, and there was no end to the rain. The ditches and canals were overflowing. The sound of the steady rain and the croaking of frogs could be heard all day. The village pathways had been drowned. People had to use boats to go to the market. One day, the morning was overcast with rain clouds. Postmaster's little student patiently waited by the door for a long time, but she did not hear him call out for her, as usual. Rodin walked into the room with her bundle of books. She saw him lying on his bed and turned to walk out silently. This time, he called out. Rotten, I'm not feeling well. I think I have fever. Touch my forehead and see. In this terribly isolated place, lying ill on a rainy day, he yearned for the touch of a caring hand. He almost felt his mother's cool hand on his forehead. As he tossed and turned, delirious with high fever, he imagined his sister was sitting by him. And Rotten, she was not a child any longer, she immediately turned into a grown-up woman and took the place of his mother she called in the doctor gave the patient his tablets stayed awake all night by his bedside cooked his broth for him brought her face close to his and asked a hundred times
4: Dada, Babu, are you feeling better <laughs>
3: The postmaster took many days to recover from malaria, and when he left his sickbed, very emaciated, he decided that was that. He must get a transfer. Citing ill health and unhygienic surroundings, he immediately sent an appeal to the head office for a transfer. Relieved of her responsibility as a nurse, Rotten resumed her old post by the door. But unlike the past, she was not summoned often by her master. She would peep in sometimes and see him sitting, distracted, or lying vacantly on the bed While Rotten waited to be called he was impatiently waiting for a reply to his letter The girl sat outside his door and read her old book a hundred times She feared if she was called suddenly she may not remember her spellings and compound words Finally, after a week one evening she was summoned Her heart dancing, Rotten entered the room
4: Dada Babu, did you call me?
3: Postmaster said I am leaving tomorrow Rotten asked
4: Where to Babu?"
3: I'm going home
4: When will you come back?
3: I won't return Rotten did not ask again Postmaster told her that he had applied for a transfer but it had been turned down so he has resigned and is leaving for home For a long time no one spoke The lamp flickered in the corner of the room and in one corner of the worn leaking roof raindrops fell into a clay bowl drip, drip drip after a while rotten went off silently to make roti in the kitchen she wasn't as quick as she normally was a hundred thoughts flew into her mind when postmaster had finished his meal rotten asked
4: Dada, Babu, will you take me to your house
3: postmaster laughed and said how is that possible he did not bother to explain to her why it was impossible all night long in her dreams and awakening the little girl heard his laughter and dismissal. How is that possible? <laughs> In the morning, our postmaster saw that his bath water had been filled. A city boy, he preferred bathing in his backyard rather than in the pond. Rodden had not asked when he was to leave the next day. She must have gone to the river deep at night to fill water for him, in case he needed to bathe early in the morning. After the bath, Rodden was summoned. Rodden came in silently and stood looking at his face, waiting for his orders. Her master said, Rodden, I will tell my replacement to look after you and take good care of you. You need not worry because I am going away. No doubt he said this from the depth of his affection and kindness, but who will understand a woman's heart? Rodden had often endured harsh words from her master, but she could not bear these words of compassion. She cried out, sobbing wildly.
4: No, no, you don't need to tell anyone about me. I don't want to stay here.
3: Postmaster had never seen her behave this way, so he was taken by surprise. The new postmaster arrived. He was handed over all the charges, and our postmaster prepared to leave. Before leaving, he called to Rotten and said, "Rotten, I've never given you anything. Today I shall leave something for you before going away. This will see you through for a few days." He put away some money for the journey and pulled out the rest of his salary. Then Rotten fell into the dust and held his feet.
4: Tada Babu, I beg of you, don't give me anything. No one need worry about me. I don't want anything.
3: And she ran away in a flash. The ex-postmaster heaved a deep sigh, picked up his carpet bag, piled his blue tin trunk with white patterns on the coolie's head, tucked his umbrella under his arm, and walked towards the boat waiting for him. (音楽) . When the boat left on the river widened and swollen by the rain the lapping waters seemed like the tears of the earth. Then our hero felt a pang in his heart. The pained face of a simple, illiterate village girl seemed to reflect this huge, unexpressed sorrow pervading the entire universe. Once he genuinely felt, I should go back and bring the world's forsaken orphan girl with me. But by then the wind had puffed the sails, the monsoon tide was at its full the village had passed and the cremation ground could be seen on the bank the dejected traveller swept along on the river tide concluded with a theory that life will have many such separations and deaths what is the point of going back Horton's tortured heart offered no theories of comfort. She kept wandering around the post office, her face flooded with tears. Perhaps she nursed a faint hope that Babu may return, and that illusion did not permit her to leave. Oh, the folly of the human heart, it does not learn from mistakes. The principles of logic enter the mind with such difficulty. We deny the obvious truth, reject blatant proof, and embrace false hope with both arms and tie our hearts to it. At the end, the illusion cuts all nerves, drains the blood, breaks the heart and escapes. Then momentarily, we return to our sense. Soon after, we earnestly seek another maze of folly to lose our lives in.
5: five-year-old daughter, Minnie, chatters non-stop. After her birth, she waited about a year to learn to speak. Thereafter, she's been talking incessantly. Every waking moment she talks, her mother often scolds her and gets her to stop. But I don't have the heart to do that. I find it so unnatural if Minnie is quiet. After a while, it gets unbearable. So her conversation with me takes place with great energy this morning I've just started writing the 17th chapter of my novel Minnie walks in and says with much concern
4: Baba Ram calls a crow Kauwa he's very silly isn't he
5: I try to explain to her that there are different languages but she shoots off again
4: Baba, Bhola says there is an elephant in the sky and when it sprinkles water with its trunk, it rains. Bhola is a liar. He talks all day and says heaps of lies.
5: Without waiting for my answer, she asked, Baba, do you love Ma? I had to say, Mini, go and play with Bhola. I need to do some writing. She immediately sat under my writing desk, near my feet, and busied herself playing agdum bagdum on her knees. In my 17th chapter, the hero, Pratap Singh, had grabbed Princess Ganchenmala, and in the pitch-dark night jumped from the prison window into the fathomless water of the river below.
4: को था आमार है ये जावार ने इमाना मुने मुने दिले दिलें
5: My room faces the street, outside. Minnie suddenly stopped her game and ran to the window, shouting, "Kabuliwala! Oh, kabuliwala!" I looked up and saw a tall man wearing grubby loose pyjamas, a turban on his head, a bag slung on his shoulder, a few grape boxes in his hand. He was walking on, but suddenly my daughter started calling out to him. I wasn't sure why she was so excited. In fact, at that instant, I thought it would be such a nuisance if the man would walk in and interrupt my 17th chapter again. The very minute, Kabuliwala turned back, smiling, and started walking towards our door. Minnie raced out like a whirlwind, heading straight for the inner quarters. There was no sign of her at all. The secret fear in her heart was that Kabuliwala had children stashed in, her, in his bag. Meanwhile, the man stood by my door and with a smile said, "Salam." I sighed. Pratap Singh and kanchanmala Mala would have to stay in the turbulent dark waters for a while. It was only decent that I should buy something from this man. I bought some grapes and dry fruits. Then we spoke for a while about Abdurrahman Rahman the Russians, the British and their border policy. As I turned back to my room, he asked, Babu, can I see your larki? I thought this was a good chance to break these false fears that Minnie held in her heart. I called her out. She stood close to me, casting a suspicious eye at Kabuliwala and his jola. He took some raisins out of the bag to give her, but she refused to take them, and petrified, pressed closer to my knees. This was their first meeting. A few days later, as I was going out, I saw my daughter seated on the bench in front of our house, talking, 19 to the dozen, and Kabuliwala, sitting at her feet, and nodding his head in huge concentration. Sometimes he responded in his very broken bungla. In her five years of experience, Minnie has never found such a patient listener, (laughs) uh, apart from her father. Then I saw that her tiny achul was filled with raisins and nuts. I told Kabuliwala, ''Why have you given her so much? There's no need.'' I gave him a silver coin, he took it unhesitatingly and put it in his jola. Later, I learned this was not Minnie's second meeting with Kabuliwala. He came quite often and gave her of and had actually managed to find her pl- a place in her little heart. I heard there were some running jokes between them. As soon as she saw Rahmat, Minnie would ask,
4: Kabuliwala or Kabuliwala? What do you have in your jholi?
5: And Rahmat would laugh and say in a nasal accent, Haati! Which meant there was an elephant in his bag. That was his joke. And they would both laugh a lot. And on that autumn morning, the naive laughter of an adult and a child would ring out. I felt good about it. There was another joke. He would tease Minnie and ask, Koki Tumi Sasur jabe Jabena Bengali girls are familiar with the term husband's home, even as children. But I run a modern household and have not introduced my child to the concept of marriage yet. So Minnie would not quite understand the question. But of course, she wouldn't admit that, and instead would counter Tumi Sasur bari Jabe. Rahmat would feign anger and shake his fists and say, "Hami sasur ke marbe!" He threatened to beat his father-in-law, and Minnie would burst into peals of laughter. light of autumn now in ancient times the kings would set out for their conquests at this time of year I've never stepped out of Kolkata, that's why my imagination runs riot and travels to far off lands I've lived for many years with a great desire to see foreign lands, to travel my mind speeds off at the mention of a foreign land and I see images of unknown rivers, mountains, civilizations which were happy and free. But I love the corner of my room, my writing desk and the window facing it and in fact quite detest the idea of leaving my familiar place for too long. So this autumn I've spent many hours talking with Rakhmat. And as he describes his homeland, going on journeys with him. Bounded by steep, burnt, red mountain ranges and thin desert roads, a pack of camels, laden with goods, moves on. Turbans traders and travellers ride the camels or walk the rough paths. Some hold spears and daggers, others have barrel guns. Rahmat would tell me stories about his land in his deep voice and his people and these scenes would pass before my eyes. Every year, Rakhbat leaves for his home at the end of winter. He gets busy claiming back money from his debtors. He needs to knock at every home, but he makes sure to visit Mini every day, watching the two of them huddled in a corner, whispering and laughing with each other. One would think there was a conspiracy being hatched the day he doesn't make it in the morning, then he drops by in the evening in the dark shadows. When Rahmat emerges suddenly, tall, soiled clothes, saddled with bags and bundles, it can be rather startling. But when Mini rushes out laughing.
4: Kabuliwala, oh Kabuliwala!
5: And when I see the two very disparate friends whisper and laugh with the simplicity of their hearts, then I feel a strange happiness. One morning, I was at my desk, correcting some proof sheets. Suddenly, there arose a great commotion in the street. I looked up and saw Rachmat being dragged away by two policemen. They were followed by a group of curious boys and hangers-on. Rahmat's clothes had blood stains, and one policeman had a bloody knife in his hand. I went out and stopped the policeman. What I heard in scattered bits from them and from Rahmat amounted to this. One of our neighbours had purchased a shawl from Rahmat and owed him money. When Rahmat asked for his money, the neighbour had denied his debt. There was a fierce argument, some insults, and Rahmat had stabbed him. Rahmat was still shouting profanities against his debtor when Minnie ran out crying,
4: Kabuliwala, O oh, Kabuliwala!
5: Rahmat's expression softened immediately and he looked at Minnie with amusement. His jola was missing, so the customary joke could not be made. So Minnie asked,
4: Tumi Are you off to your in laws?
5: Rahmat laughed and said he was going precisely there. Rahmat was jailed for causing serious injury to our neighbor. Slowly the memory of him faded. I sort of forgot about him. While we carried on with our everyday lives at an everyday pace, we did not stop to think how a free-spirited traveler from the mountains was spending years behind prison walls. And the restless Minnie forgot her best friend so easily that it surprised even me, her father. She quickly forgot her best friend and befriended the stable boy. As she grew older, her boyfriends were quickly replaced with girlfriends. She's grown up. These days, I rarely see her in her room. And we talk and laugh very little. Many years have passed Another autumn has arrived My daughter's Minnie, my daughter Minnie's wedding was arranged She'll be married during the holidays for Durga Pujo. When Durga leaves her father's home My daughter, my fountain of joy Will also plunge my house into darkness And leave for her husband's home It's a beautiful morning today After the monsoon The newly washed sunshine falls like molten gold. The shabby-looking houses on our narrow Kolkata street light up with the soft glow of the autumn sun. In my house, the Shanai has been playing since dawn. The sorrowful notes seem to come sobbing out of my very heart and ribs. The heart-wrenching Pairavi spreads my impending sorrow of parting through the rising sun, across the universe. Today, it is my Minnie's wedding. People had descended. Bamboo poles were being strung together in the courtyard to make a marquee. The tinkle of crystals could be heard as chandeliers went up in every hall. Managers and workers called out to each other i was sitting at my desk doing my accounts when rahmat suddenly came up and saluted me i didn't recognize him at first he had no jeweler. his long hair had been cut his body was tired and worn i knew him when he smiled gi rahmat when did you get here he said he'd been released from jail the night before the mention of jail and the remind- the reminder of the incident bothered me. Here was a murderer in front of me and my soul seemed to shrink in antipathy. I found myself wishing he would leave soon and not spoil this auspicious day. I told him, we have an event at home today. I'm busy. You must go now. He turned to go immediately. Then. Hesitating near the door, he asked, Can I not see Cookie once? I think he imagined Minnie as the little girl he'd seen years ago. That she would run out, calling,
4: Kabuliwala, oh Kabuliwala!
5: As she did in the past. That they would share their jovial conversation as before. I saw he had in his hand a souvenir for Minnie. A box of grapes and some dried fruit in a newspaper which he must have borrowed from some friend or acquaintance. He didn't have a bag of his own. I took the bundle and proceeded to pay him some money. He suddenly held my hand. I will always remember your kindness. Don't pay me, Babu. Like you, I also have a larki back at home. I love her dearly and miss her. I remember her face and I've brought some mewa for your cookie. I don't come to do soda." As his eyes misted, he put his hand through his baggy kuta and pulled out a dirty piece of paper from somewhere near his chest. Placing the paper on the desk, he proceeded to open its folds carefully. I saw an imprint of a small hand. It was not a photograph or an oil painting, just a simple impression of a tiny hand dipped in soot. Holding this memory of his daughter close to his heart, Rahabat would wander the streets of Kolkata every year. The touch of those soft little fingers would ease the pain in the big man's chest and remind him of love and affection. Through tearful eyes, I looked at those small hands. They belonged to a little Parvati whose home was in the mountains. They reminded me of my own daughter. At that moment, I forgot that he was a Kabuliwala selling wares on the street, and I, a middle-class, respectable gentleman. It didn't matter. He was a father, and so was I. I called for Minnie immediately from her quarters. There were plenty of objections raised from the women in the household, but I paid no attention to them. Dressed in a red veil and sari, her forehead decorated with jondon, the young bride came and stood next to me shyly. Rachmat was caught unprepared. He seemed at a loss for words. He couldn't joke as easily as in the past. Suddenly... He laughed and said Koki Dumishudbari Jabish Minnie now knows the meaning of the term, so she couldn't answer as smartly as she used to as a child. Rachmat's joke had sent the blood flushing to her cheeks. She turned away her face and stood her ground. I watched them and remembered the first day that Minnie and Kabuliwala had met. My heart ached. When Minnie had gone, Rahmat let out a deep sigh and sat on the floor. He knew suddenly that his daughter also must have grown up like Minnie and that he would never see the child in her again. He did not even know what had happened to her in the last eight years. The shanai played through the mellow autumn morning. Rahmat sat in a narrow lane in north Kolkata and thought of his home in Afghanistan, in the desert mountains. I handed him some money and said, Rahmat, you must go back home to your daughter. Mini will be blessed by the joy of your reunion. Having given Rahmat that money, I had to make some changes to the wedding celebrations. I could no longer afford the electric lights and also had to forego the special music. The women from the inner quarters expressed great dissatisfaction, but Mini's wedding was lighted by the auspicious lamp of hope and love of an absent father who had started on his journey home to meet his daughter.